Coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fourth Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. All right, and a happy Thursday to you. Thank you for listening to this show, whether it's on the America One Radio app or AmericaOneRadio.com. Afterwards, wherever you podcast, of course, we air weekdays, 9 to 10 a.m. and then 5 to 6 p.m. The replay. Today may be one of those days where you get two different shows, however, because, well, we've got an evidentiary hearing happening in Fulton County here in Atlanta today. And this is one that could make or break the entire Fulton County District Attorney Office case against Donald Trump and his co-defendants. It's that big a deal. And what's going to happen in court today has absolutely nothing to do with those cases. That is the enraging part. Tamar Hollerman, the AJC, summarizing it thusly. An evidentiary hearing today has the potential to set Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis' sprawling election interference case back on track or deal it a crippling blow. The election probe, which has produced historic racketeering charges against former President Donald Trump, one-time White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, and 13 other remaining defendants, has in the last five weeks been overshadowed by allegations of impropriety against Willis. Defendant Mike Roman has accused Willis of enriching herself off the case due to her romantic relationship with Nathan Wade. I'm sorry, did it sound like I'm chuckling a little bit? Enriching when you take a Royal Caribbean cruise is not exactly enriching, but it is a benefit. Anyway, a romantic relationship with Nathan Wade, the outside attorney she tapped as a special prosecutor to lead the probe. Roman has pointed to the thousands of dollars Wade has spent on vacations he took with Willis using his salary from the Trump case. That has created an improper personal interest in the Trump case and is a form of self-dealing, Roman claims. The prosecutors have argued they've done nothing wrong, and Wade said the two split travel expenses roughly equally. And we may find that out in evidentiary hearing today, which could stretch into tomorrow, by the way. Roman is pushing for the entire Fulton DA's office to be disqualified and that the charges against him be dropped, a request that's been joined by eight other co-defendants, including Donald Trump and Mark Meadows. Tamar Holloman continues, Thursday's hearing will be a key moment as Fulton Superior Court Judge Scott McAfee considers evidence to determine whether there is, quote, any personal benefit conveyed from the Willis-Wade relationship and the election case. Legal observers, Hollerman writes, believe it's unlikely that McAfee will drop the criminal charges against the defendants. And, and seriously, because, again, this has absolutely nothing to do with the cases. And the idea that there's a conflict of interest is kind of corny, too, because they're on the same side of this sprawling racketeering case. It's not as if Fonnie Willis was having an affair with one of the defendants' attorneys. That would be a conflict of interest. Hollerman continues, but they see a potential decision to remove the DA as an almost certain death knell for the racketeering probe. Here's what's worrisome for anyone who would like to have, I don't know, a speedy outcome of this. For voters to step into the polls in November and know everything they need to know about the two people that they will have to choose between for president of the United States. We assume two people. There could be a third party candidate and there will be a, the assorted no names that we see from 
the Green Party, et cetera, and so on. Jumping over to the Politically Georgia blog at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, hear this. Legal experts consider it highly unlikely. The judge throws out the criminal charges, but the case could be kaput if Willis is removed. That's because it would then be up to the prosecuting attorney's counsel of Georgia to tap a replacement. That's the same nonpartisan state agency that has yet to announce steps against Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones more than 18 months after Willis was disqualified from investigating his role as a Trump elector. Jones was among those who met secretly following the 2020 election to sign a certificate falsely claiming Trump had won the state. And remember, we had Wayne Kendall on, attorney Wayne Kendall on, just yesterday on this show where he is still pursuing that very same prosecuting uh, prosecuting attorney's counsel of Georgia to do something. This could all, however, be avoided, though. Georgia State University professor Clark Cunningham has said so in op-eds and on cable television when asked. This is Professor Cunningham nearly two weeks ago, 13 days ago, on MSNBC with Alex Wagner. Professor Cunningham, I, I know that you wrote an op-ed in the New York Times, and I and I'd love to read an excerpt of it, where you said, I believe the judicious and far-sighted course would be for Miss Willis to take a personal leave of absence and turn over control of the district attorney's office and the case against Mr. Trump to a career deputy district attorney. Now, that was before uh, this filing came out today, and I wonder if there's anything in it in terms of her explanation of things, her defense, if you will, that changes your mind. Well, with all respect to your other guest, um, reading this... Um, <clears throat> response and the, I would say, very vague and evasive affidavit uh, filed by Nathan Wade strengthens my opinion that she should take a temporary leave of absence from the office and turn it over over to a career prosecutor. Um, I think that uh, there's a, a lot that the uh, Trump defendants can work with here. Um, and uh, I think it's way too early to make any predictions about what the ultimate outcome of the disqualification motion is going to be. I've said that before. I say that now. But let me point out one thing that's, that's pretty clear just from what's been filed. So uh, we've seen uh, Mr. Roman's lawyer filed something late this afternoon. She finally got a, a, a evidence uh, that Mr. Wade spent about $3,800 at the beginning of uh, November 2022 to pay for both of them to take a three-day luxury trip to Aruba. Uh, they came back from Aruba, and uh, at that point, he did not have a contract. His contract had expired. They together signed a new contract right after coming back from Aruba. She personally signed it. He personally signed it. Uh, I cannot understand if she was in a romantic relationship with this man as a public official, why she would be signing a contract, an outside contract, uh, with someone that she's in a relationship with. Mm -hmm. um, and then that contract uh, gave her the authority to allow him to go over monthly limits. And the next year, she did it month after month after month. He collected at least 30000 more dollars than the cap, and she apparently personally approved it. So uh, I, I don't see these filings as resolving issues at all. Again, I'm not prejudging whether she would be disqualified, but I do think the defendants still have a lot to work with to argue that she had a financial stake in the amount of money he was getting paid uh, as outside counsel. Um. I can't get into the receipts, yeah. <laughs> and I, I yeah. absolutely trust that Professor Cunningham has looked at Mike Roman's lawyer's filing yeah. um, uh, judiciously, but <clears throat> I'm sure there there is going to be some amount of back and forth about all of this. Yep. 
I go to the, the Burt Jones case where it's, you know, there's the legal question and then there's the ethical question. And the fact of the matter is, you know, as distasteful as all this may be, this is the highest profile case, maybe in, uh, certainly in this DA's lifetime, maybe in Georgia state history, going after a former right. president on charges of election conspiracy, a RICO charge against a president. And I just wonder, you know, is there some merit to, as Professor Cunningham suggests, basically taking a leave of absence, which would not scuttle the broader case and would turn it over to someone else in her office? So um, I think I agree with the professor that that um, it is useful to await the hearing and the full facts in the same way that I, I found that the filing today was informative and changed my view. I was concerned about the idea of hiring somebody while you were in a relationship. I'm less concerned about the idea that the contract continued because these were six months, six month contracts. But I do think let's wait for the hearing. I do not think that there should be an overreaction of saying, oh, if there's an appearance, you should withdraw. I've been in those kinds of mm -hmm. cases. I've worked for Robert Mueller. I have seen high profile cases and the kinds of allegations and spurious allegations that are made. Um, this comes up a lot of times when people ask judges to recuse because of an appearance of, of impropriety. And usually really good judges, their first instinct is, you know what? I don't want any question. I'm happy to recuse. And then they think, Unless wait, it's Clarence Thomas. I'm sorry. And it had to be said. Okay. Yeah. True. I, well, okay. I did put a caveat on how I phrased that. But, um, but then judges think about, wait a second, that is not how you can run a system, that you don't just recuse every time somebody raises an issue. There really has to be a legal standard. It has to be met. You cannot let one side or the other use gamesmanship. And so, um, if this turns out to be um, something where, um, uh, yes, she had a personal relationship with somebody in an office after they were hired, um, that to me is not a reason to recuse. I would note, just to the professor's point, that one thing that is at least alleged by the Fannie Wallace submission is that every receipt, all of the payments had to be approved by the chief financial officer of Fulton County. I was looking for the, exactly that kind of thing. What kind of safeguards? Exactly. Um, if you're having that relationship, what are you putting in place? That doesn't mean did they, you know, we could, there could be more to it, to the professor's point. I, I do think it is useful to have a, a hearing on this, but I do think this is a much more complicated situation and people should not be saying, oh, the better way to deal with this is just to recuse. I think that you cannot run a system that way. Um that is uh, Andrew Weissman. He's a former FBI general counsel on with Alex Wagner and Professor Clark Cunningham from Georgia State University. He is a frequent guest on MSNBC, and I say this often for those who are on the left and digest all their information from their tried and true media sources, much the way those on the right do. You have to be careful digesting too much of it because you lose sight of the overall picture. And that's where Georgia State University Professor Clark Cunningham comes in. In fact, he rebuts what, Fleiss, uh, what, what Weissman said just seconds after. Let me add a footnote to what uh, Andrew just said, and that is my suggestion is in many ways strategic. Um, I, I, I'm an expert on how this, these, these things go in Georgia, and we're looking at months, months of delay, I would say, even if she ultimately prevails, um, months of delay. And right now, we've just found out that the D.C. case is, has been uh, taken off the March schedule. There's an opportunity for, for the uh, Georgia DA's office, maybe just to sever Donald Trump, try him alone, and jump into this 
space that's in the spring right now and give the whole nation a televised trial right away um, before the general election. I think that's incredibly valuable. Yes. And Fannie Willis could make that happen if she made this disqualification motion go away, which she could do right now, right now. if she took a leave of absence. So it's a strategic point. I appreciate Andrew saying prosecutors don't want to be chased chased around by accusations. But uh, yeah, Willis is smart enough to realize that this is going to go on for a while. It's not going to be resolved February 15th. Professor Cunningham's uh, appearance February 2nd on Alex Wagner, MSNBC. He was actually on Rachel Maddow just three days ago and updated Rachel and her audience as to why he still believes his January 24th opinion piece in the New York Times holds true. Saying, now that Judge McAfee has said at the February 12th hearing, quote, it is possible that the facts alleged by Mr. Roman could result in disqualification and denied the DA's effort to avoid an evidentiary hearing starting February 15th today, it is increasingly strategic, he writes, for D.A. Willis to take a leave of absence. In my view, it would be an admirable, even courageous thing if D.A. Willis took an absence and appointed one of her deputies as acting D.A., allowing the case to stay on track and still in the control of the Fulton County D.A. office. Those hostile to the D.A. might seize on such an action as a concession that the disqualification motion has merit and or as an admission of some kind of wrongdoing. But instead of taking leave should be looked at as best option. But instead, taking leave should be looked at as best option to make this controversy go away immediately. Putting Fulton County case back on track right now could be of historic importance. He mentions, however, but the leave of absence option may vanish if Judge McAfee orders disqualification at the end of this week's hearing. Going to take a quick break, come back and explain why there may be some personal reasons that this leave of absence won't happen. This is The Ron Show. I do want to thank you for listening to The Ron Show, whether it's on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or on your preferred podcast platform. I will say this. I have pointed out many times, I'm no legal expert, I'm not a lawyer, not even a law school dropout. Uh, but I did watch all nine seasons of Suits, grew up on Perry Mason episodes on Superstation TBS back in the day. So am I not sort of an ex- No, I'm kidding. Um, here's where the personal part of the whole Fonnie Willis, Nathan Wade kerfuffle comes into full focus and why I think the reason they haven't decided to just take the whole leave of absence part that Professor Clark Cunningham keeps opining, and I firmly in, in his camp on this, uh, should happen. Why they're not going to do it is because I think they're already on the hook in some way, shape, form, or fashion if they perjured themselves. You cannot be an attorney and perjure yourself. It's not, no, it's, it's bad. It's, it's, it's really bad. I mean, you and I can go to jail for that, and we're not lawyers. We don't fully understand the legal ramifications of telling a little white lie while under oath, right? They do. That's their job. But then again... I was under the assumption that Fonnie Willis, a brilliant prosecutor, will also be smart enough not to hire someone that she's having a relationship with to work on the most important case in her career. And here we are. Uh, Back to Tamar Hollerman's piece at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Some allies are fretting even more about a new set of allegations from Ashley Merchant, that's Mike Roman's attorney, that Wade wasn't truthful in a sworn affidavit included as part of a court filing submitted by the DA's office. Merchant said she has two witnesses who can rebut Wade's statements that the personal relationship with Willis didn't begin until after he was hired on the Trump case. 
That's important, by the way. And that he was never cohabit he has never cohabitated with Willis. Oh boy. During Monday's hearing, Special Prosecutor Ann Cross said the facts Wade swore to in his affidavit are 100 percent true. Well, I guess we'll see. Uh, Amy Lee Copeland, a Savannah-based former federal prosecutor who signed onto the Friend of the Court brief we uh, gave some attention to earlier this week, said she still believes there isn't the type of, quote, impermissible financial conflict here that would result in Fulton prosecutors being disqualified. She said the concern would be is if people are not 100% transparent with the judge, he would view it as some sort of sign that they were trying to cover up something and that might lead him to believe that a conflict exists where there really isn't one. Anytime you appear in court and anytime you're a witness, you have to be truthful and transparent, she added. The DA's office should know that better than anybody. To which I say, yes, again, brilliant prosecutor, brilliant district attorney, and yet she didn't stop to think, hmm, maybe I shouldn't go to Aruba with this guy who's on the Fulton County taxpayer dole right now because it might look improper. Or maybe we should cool our jets until after the biggest case in our damn careers has subsided before we take this any further. Back to Hollerman's piece, Andrew Fleischman, a criminal defense attorney unaffiliated with the case, said, if Merchant can prove prosecutors lied in the affidavit, it should warrant not only their removal from the case, but disciplinary proceedings with the state bar. It would be extremely serious misconduct, he said. That would mean that you, as a district attorney, told someone to write an affidavit you knew it was false and filed it into the case. You have aided, abetted, encouraged, or party to that crime. Back to Professor Clark Cunningham, who chimes in here, agreeing if Merchant can back up her claims, quote, there's a real question about whether Wade committed perjury. If so, he... Sid Willis may be guilty of suborning perjury because she knows the details of their relationship. Cunningham said that alone might be reason enough to disqualify them from the case, which puts us back at the Prosecuting Attorney Council of Georgia, which has for 18 months not moved on replacing Fonnie Willis for the case with Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones. At that time frame, at minimum, we would be resuming this case August of 2025 which could be eight months into a second Donald Trump presidency. I just wanted to point out here that for those who, like me and Professor Clark Cunningham at Georgia State University, who believe that it would just be the simplest thing for Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade to take a leave of absence and recuse themselves from this case, we're all sitting here screaming, why? Why are we not doing this? That might be why. Make no mistake, Ashley Merchant in legal circles, folks that know her, folks that know her work, she's good at this. She's really good at this. And I think she has potentially painted these two into a corner. Yes, by all means, take that leave of absence. However, there's this affidavit that we now need to speak about to determine if Mr. Wade perjured himself, that ruins your career, and if D.A. Fonnie Willis suborned perjury and thus has ruined her career as well. And Merchant isn't stopping with Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade. Merchant has subpoenaed nine members of the DA staff, including Willis Wade, the DA's executive assistant, and members of her security detail. And listen, before you pull up YouTube or try to watch this on cable television, it's my understanding this is going to be a rather mundane and boring and back and forth between attorneys about what should and what shouldn't be allowed and who should and who shouldn't be allowed to testify. This is going to be a fits and starts kind of thing, not great television. It doesn't get wrapped up like a 44-minute episode of Suits. I mean, we're going to get some of that 
definition of what is is sort of stuff today, maybe tomorrow as well. Uh, Harleman writes, attorneys are also expected to argue over definitions and how facts are construed. Among them, what does it mean for two people to cohabitate? Should the start of the relationship be when a couple becomes exclusive, when they first sleep together, or somewhere in between? Oh, boy. And this all could have been avoided if Fonnie and Nathan had just been smarter about this from the jump. That's what's so frustrating. And at this point, if Fonnie and Nathan are going to stay on this case... All we can hope for is that the truth is on their side. And I say that because it's really hard to get all those other folks on the same page about a lie. We know this because there are plea deals already filed from some of Trump's co-defendants. They themselves knew they couldn't keep telling a lie. Let's catch our breath. Super Bowl Parade. Add that to the list of things you can't go to without worrying about being gunned down when the Ron Show returns. Broadcasting five days a week to make common sense common again. This is the Ron Show on America One Radio. Well, we have a really long list in the United States of things that we cannot do without fear of being shot by some moron with a gun. Go to the grocery store, go to church, go to school, drop your kids off at school. A night out with friends, a movie, the list goes on and on. And as of yesterday, we can now add, celebrate your team's Super Bowl victory. I mean, listen, no fear of, no fear of us having to deal with that sort of threat in the city of Atlanta. Although, who knows, new coach, new quarterback soon, we would assume. But we have, I have personally sat on a sidewalk in Midtown Atlanta to celebrate the Atlanta Braves winning a World Series. So it's sort of similar, right? Yesterday, PBS NewsHour led with this. Welcome to the NewsHour. One person is dead tonight and up to 15 hurt after Kansas City Super Bowl victory parade ended in a burst of gunfire. It's unclear how many of the injured have gunshot wounds, but police say two suspects were arrested. A sea of red and gold had flooded the city's downtown as players paraded on double-decker buses. Then shooting broke out near the scene and people in the crowd, including the mayor, started running. All of a sudden, people started crushing forward. Everybody started running. There was screaming. We didn't know what was happening, but this day and age when people run, you run. And so I put my arms around her, and we tried to push through so people wouldn't run on top of us. And there was a woman crying, saying something about somebody had been shot. The Chiefs said their players were already on buses heading back to their stadium when the shooting started. Police had no initial details on what the motive might have been. That from last night's PBS NewsHour. News Hour. They had an entire hour to give you the day's news, and that story got 60 seconds. Okay, lead story, 60 seconds, and then they moved on. Literally moved on to another story within 60 seconds. That's how common a mass shooting has become in the United States. You get 60 seconds, and then you move on. Because, ho-hum, there's been another mass shooting in the United States. Oh, and hey, not to be outdone, right here in Atlanta, let's go to WANF Television. Parents on edge, now reeling from another school shooting in Metro Atlanta. <laughs> Students at Benjamin E. Mays High School were still being questioned late into the night. I'm Blair Miller. And I'm Sean Gables. The investigation is still very active. By the way, to their credit, two and a half minutes on the story. Now, we're still waiting to learn who the suspects are, who has been arrested. There was uh, one individual tackled by a good guy without a gun. 
because, well, I'll let him explain as he did on CNN yesterday. You were there and, and there you, you shared video here uh, of the moment that you helped tackle this person. What can you tell us about what happened in that moment? Uh, I just heard somebody yelling to stop this guy, tackle him, and he was coming in the opposite direction. So I just, you don't think about it. It's just a reaction. He got close to me. I got the right angle on him and I hit him from behind. And when I hit him from behind, I either jarred the gun out of his hand or out of his sleeve. Cause as I'm taking him down to the ground, I see the gun on the ground. So I take him down and I put all, all my body weight on him. And then another good Samaritan comes over and is helping me because I kind of got him high and the other guy gets him around his waist and we're just putting our weight on him and he's just fighting to get up, but we're, we're fighting to keep him down. And another Samaritan comes over and puts his weight on us and we're waiting for the cops to show up. They finally, well, they get there and, uh, the second cop gets there, the third cop gets there, then they pretty much take over. And we, I, 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 I'm standing there for about a minute or two. You know, me and the cops didn't even have like one or two words, you know. Wow. Once they had him and got him cuffed, I sat there for two minutes with all my three daughters. And then we just, we, we walked away. We, we headed toward our car. It was just last week we were talking about how Republicans here in the Georgia legislature were falling all over themselves to vote for a gun and ammo and gun-related purchase tax holiday under the guise of hunting, supporting hunting. Because who was it from uh, from from the Georgia gang this week? It was Janelle, right? Uh, the deer are nipping on my rose bushes. Yes, the tax holiday under the guise of curtailing the deer population, which, by the way, is already being curtailed. However, didn't just cover hunting rifles and shotguns and ammunition for that, or deer hunting stands, or camouflage gear to wear. No, it's just just guns, guns and ammo, and gun-related paraphernalia. And any kind, handgun, if you'd like, sure, there'll be a tax holiday for that as well. <laughs> we just had this come up last week. Instead of tackling or working with law enforcement to figure out how we can curtail folks having guns who shouldn't have guns. The state of Missouri, by the way, a very permissible state when it comes to gun laws. Open carry, legal, without a permit. Now, I should point out, local governments, cities, towns, counties, can ban the open carrying of firearms without a valid permit that Missouri issues or honors. The state preemption statute only covers the carrying of concealed firearms, so local authorities can ban the carrying of firearms openly without a valid permit. But that's a piecemeal, mosaic way to attack that, of course. Going to the uh, UK's independent, according to 2021 data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which, by the way, Republicans do not want the CDC to investigate. 
Uh, Missouri has the ninth highest rate of gun deaths in the United States. It's also one of the states with the highest rates of gun ownership. About 48.8% of adults in Missouri own firearms, according to a 2020 study by the Rand Corporation. Missouri's gun laws are considered some of the laxest in the country, with the Giffords Law Center calling them appallingly weak. No background check is required to purchase a firearm, nor is a permit for concealed carry. There is no ban on assault weapons. And by the way, we, I, at, at the time of doing this show, we don't know what sort of gun. Uh, there's also no restrictions on gun ownership for people who have been convicted of violent crimes, and firearms are not required to be locked up to prevent children from accessing them. It's my understanding, by the way, at least I'm hearing from, from different media reports, that these are teenagers. These are minors uh, involved, much as was the case, uh, apparently, at Benjamin Mays High School in Atlanta, in Georgia, another state with some of the most lax gun laws in the country. Uh, back to the independent. In 2021, Missouri enacted a law called the Second Amendment Preservation Act, which made federal gun regulations illegal statewide and prohibited law enforcement from enforcing any federal laws that, quote, infringe on the people's right to keep and bear arms. A federal judge later struck it down, having ruled the state law unconstitutional, and the Supreme Court upheld the decision. The problem is there's no way of knowing where these perps got their guns if they got them illegally. We have vehicle break-ins in major cities all the time. Folks who are looking for the gun that many gun enthusiasts say they want to have on them, want to openly carry, or keep in their glove box, or keep under their car seat. There's only so many places to hide a gun in a car. You know what I mean? When I am driving around town showing houses, I have to throw my laptop in the trunk. Because I don't want it to be seen in the back seat. Now, I don't do that hoping that somebody doesn't steal the laptop. Because if they break into the car, they're going to be able to get into the trunk too, right? No, I do that because, my God, at the very least, I don't need to broadcast to any perp walking by that I have something valuable in the car. I don't want the window smashed and then have to deal with getting the window replaced or driving around (laughs) long enough until I get the window replaced and the theft of the laptop. I don't know why I mentioned that. I just thought, you know, there's only so many places to hide things of value in a vehicle. And there are a lot of smash and grab artists who will smash and grab and take a gun. And because tracing laws are so difficult or, or so minuscule in this country, there's, there's, there's very little of it. There's the, the national database Republicans, uh, NRA, uh, gun enthusiasts—they don't—they don't want this this database to exist to 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 track and trace uh, who legally owns something. I, for fear of the, I, I I to this day don't understand the law-abiding gun folks, the folks who who profess themselves to be law-abiding gun owners. However, are so weird about the federal government knowing the gun or guns that they have in their possession. And this kind of comes back to this, this, this fantasy, this folly that, well, you know, I don't want big government to, to be able to catalog everything I and my friends own, because what if we have to dot, 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 what do you have to what January 6th? Well, that wasn't an insurrection. That was a violent mob. That was a riot. But, 
Tell me again why big government, I'm using air quotes here, can't have some sort of a database, why the FBI and the ATF can't know, uh, you know, who purchased what and where, uh, and, and why, why, why can't we insist that private party gun sales at least show up at somewhere in the middle uh, where uh, a law enforcement expert has to sign a document saying I witnessed this? Like you should, if you're, if I'm going to buy a gun from somebody in a private party situation, shouldn't I have to go to the Atlanta police department or Fulton County Sheriff's department? Uh, you know, take a number. We, we take a number, we sit in the lobby, we talk, we get to know each other a little bit. And then we walk into an office, we make the transaction happen in front of someone who signs a document saying that they've witnessed that and then just filed away. Shouldn't we have to do that? Shouldn't we insist that our gun retailers do a better job? And I'm not saying that most don't, but shouldn't we insist that gun retailers do a quality job when storing guns that they have, ammunition that they have stored? I mean, there should be some sort of a, some sort of a, a consensus nationally on how we... And that's the other thing. The, the ATF has so been underfunded and understaffed for so long. This is a lot like the IRS situation, right? Underfunded, understaffed for so long that they can barely do their job. In fact, a lot of gun retailers don't see someone from the ATF come in to check on any of the policies and procedures they do have to follow for many years. Well, how does that make us safer? It doesn't. We don't know at this point in time how the perps got their gun. They may have purchased them legally. It may be mom and dad's firearm. These are probably, you know, some kids who got into a scuffle over something completely unrelated. This was not some targeted attack where folks circled the calendar and plotted to, to do some terror act or something like that. This is probably just some dumb teenage scuffle, some street hoodlum crap. And yet, at least one person's dead. More than a dozen and a half kids injured. Because we can't, <laughs> we can't have any sort of tracing or database about the way a gun purchase or a gun possession can be tracked the way vehicles are. And I get it. Possessing a car is not a Second Amendment right. It's a matter of personal safety. And I don't understand, honestly, where any sort of a national database actually infringes on someone's Second Amendment right. I don't see that at all. It doesn't. It's, it's, it's irrelevant to the Second Amendment. It's just something that we as a society obviously need. And with states and their different interpretations of gun laws varying from border to border, by the way, Kansas City, a border community, we do need to have some sort of a national consensus on this, right? Well, I'm going to guess that it's universally illegal to possess a gun that you don't own. <laughs> Law enforcement can't really question you about that if you aren't made to carry a permit, but you are allowed to openly carry or conceal carry. How many states don't have gun permit laws? And then that alone detooths, disables, hamstrings, handcuffs law enforcement to be able to do a damn thing about it. 
And so we're going to keep having these sort of scenarios at Christmas parades, at Super Bowl parades. We had this in Denver after the uh, Denver Nuggets won the NBA championship last season. Forgot we got to add that to the list of things that you cannot do in this country without worrying that some jackass with a gun might decide to open fire on people in general or just someone that they have a beef with. Because we don't have an appetite in this country for dealing with gun possession in a tangible, meaningful way. Never mind the assault weapon stuff, which again, we don't know what sort of gun was used here. So no point in even wading into that conversation. Thoughts and prayers. We got them boxed up, wrapped up, ready to go at a moment's notice, like a rubber stamp. Thoughts and prayers. All right, fine. Thoughts and prayers it is. Until we meet and have this discussion again and do nothing about it. Back after this, the Ron Show on the American One Radio app, AmericanOneRadio.com, wherever you podcast. All right, we're in the home stretch, and thank you for listening to the Ron Show. Stanley Dunlap at the Georgia Recorder reporting on this, and I didn't get to this yesterday, so I apologize. No excuse, absentee voting in the state of Georgia. It survived a state election board vote to end it. Hey, some good news for democracy. He writes, uh, the newly appointed chairman of the Georgia State Election Board cast the deciding vote on Tuesday against recommending the state legislators ban no-excuse absentee voting. I just don't understand them. Well, what, what is the, what is Like, we just had the special election in New York where Republicans and Fox and & Friends, uh, is, is it Steve Ducey? Uh, well, but, but the snow, the snow. Yes, that's, you know, going to happen, right? Which is why some of us who like to make sure that we vote and that our vote counts we do so when it's convenient to us and not just convenient to a calendar date, which puts you at the whim of Mother Nature or things coming up in life. Like if there was a special election yesterday in Kansas City, well, well shit, the, the Chiefs have a parade this day. Traffic's going to be crazy and I kind of want to go to that parade and oh my God, a shooting took place and now it's calamity and uh, I just didn't get to vote. I mean, I'm not, that, that, that's hyperbolic, I guess, in some respects. But life happens. Things come up. One day can get derailed. Can totally, we all know this. Our dates all the time totally get derailed. Our plans for that day get completely derailed by something we don't expect to happen happening. Which is why you should be able to allow, you should be allowed to vote on a calendar date within, I don't know, a two-week swath. In a 3-2 vote on Tuesday, the election board struck down the recommendation to no longer allow any Georgia voter to request an absentee ballot after Chairman John Fervier, am I saying his name right, declined the request from a fellow board member that the General Assembly dissolve a rule passed in 2005. Absentee ballots in Georgia have been under increased scrutiny after the state election board adopted emergency rules in the 2020 response to the pandemic's public health emergency. A record number of Georgians voted by mail in ballots in the 2020 general election cycle, highlighted by the presidential race between Republican Donald Trump and then-Democrat nominee Joe Biden and a pair of U.S. Senate contests. Stanley writes, Trump and many of his supporters would blame his loss in 2020 on unfounded accusations of rampant voting fraud while trying to pressure state officials in Georgia to put an end to no-excuse absentee voting. Election board member Janice Johnston said Tuesday that she wanted to have legislation take action because she fears that unilaterally offering voters to fill out paper ballots outside of their polling place violates federal and state laws protecting ballot secrecy 
while also posing a higher risk of voter fraud. Johnson, who was nominated to the board in 2022 by the Georgia Republican Party, referenced the high frequency of complaints and investigations into absentee errors and illegal voting that have been brought to the board's attention in the last couple of years. Gee, ma'am, why, why would that? Why would that ramp have ramped up, I wonder? She proposed to reinstate the prior law, which limited mail-in ballots to military service members, the elderly, and to voters with disabilities. Johnson said that widespread use of absentee voting undermines confidence in elections. No, ma'am. It undermines confidence in your side of the aisle with our election process. And again, countless investigation, countless inquiry have turned up that there's no reason for that lack in confidence. Fervier acknowledged the strong opinions on both sides of the issue. However, he said he believes Georgia lawmakers made the decision to open up the vote-by-mail process to all registered voters because it was in the public's interest. Georgia lawmakers in 2005 adopted the no-excuse law. By the way, those Georgia lawmakers, conservatives, Republicans, the majority were. Anyway, they adopted that no-excuse law that allowed any registered voter to request an absentee ballot without having to provide a specific reason. Ferrier added, for me, it comes down to the will of the people, and the will of the people has been voted on by the General Assembly. This is not unusual, by the way. Vote by mail, mail drop box, and the, the drop box thing, that's, they, they've, been, they've been really working on that. Uh, eight states, California, Colorado, Hawaii, Nevada, Oregon, Utah, Vermont, Washington State, and the District of Columbia all allow elections to be conducted entirely by mail. That according to the National Council of State Legislators. Two states, Nebraska and North Dakota, permit counties to opt into conducting election by mail, by the way. And nine states, Alaska, Arizona, Florida, Kansas, Maryland, Missouri, Montana, New Mexico, and Wyoming, allow specific small elections to be conducted by mail. Alaska, it's kind of, I mean, my God, it could... It, you have to travel hours sometimes just to get to a grocery store. So, sure, you got to make that. You've got to make that possible, right? Four states: Idaho, Minnesota, New Jersey, and New Mexico permit mostly small elections for certain small jurisdictions. And by that, you can infer rural because small groups of people don't usually live in close little villages like that. In states like, what were they again? Idaho, Minnesota, New Mexico. It comes down to convenience in a lot of scenarios, right? And for some reason, we have to, on the right, make it completely inconvenient for people to vote. Marjorie Taylor Greene attacking Curb Your Enthusiasm calling the producers of that TV show nasty commies because they made light of Georgia's ban on giving folks a bottle of water for standing in a long, hot line to vote. And I know most of the time we vote in November, but we do have primaries and runoffs in the summer, right? 
And uh, does that include hot chocolate <laughs> in the in the November election? Like if we're standing in line waiting to vote in November, does that mean hot chocolate as well? Well, don't let this nasty commie opine on whether or not we should be allowed to do that because Marjorie Taylor Greene will come at me. Anyway, good to see that at least no excuse absentee voting still legal in the state of Georgia for now. That's going to do it for The Ron Show. Airing weekdays at 9 to 10 a.m. on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, and 5 to 6 p.m. for the replay. Podcasting afterwards, wherever you podcast. Show notes at RonShowATL.com. Have yourselves a great day. We'll see you tomorrow.